Hi, I'm Barbara Long, your host, and I invite you to step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we all call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. I'm really excited tonight with my uh, my special guest. <clears throat> tonight we welcome Gloria Amdola um, to the show. She's an author and intuitive with a passion for esoteric knowledge and dream language. She likes to find the truth of things hidden beneath the surface. She travels internationally and speaks to audiences about the Holy Grail mysteries and their connection to the secret destiny of America. Her travels have brought her to sacred sites worldwide to experience these powerful landscape temples firsthand. And they have changed her life tremendously from the inside out. She's a modern-day Templar in the, and I'm going to spell this because I don't know how to pronounce it, O-S-M-T-H order. Her commandery is in Rennes-le-Chateau, France, which is dedicated to Mary Magdalene. She follows in the footsteps of the Inamatic Essenes and Knights Templar, walking where they walked, gathering impressions from the traces they left behind. Gloria has learned that where they walked, so too did the ancients, initiates of the mysteries, have gathered in these places in sacred sites worldwide for many reasons, reasons we are just beginning to understand. They left us an extraordinary legacy, one that could be decoded when we were ready to comprehend its true nature. And thankfully, that time has come. She can be found at, her website is www.gloriaamandola.com. Um, it's, let me correct that, www.gloria-amandola.com. And she's got five books out there, and they're impressive. I've read, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel proud of myself here. I've read all five. There are two novels, and there is a trilogy. Uh, the two novels are... The Tower and the Dream and the Tower and the Land. And the trilogy is Mary Magdalene, Revelations from a First Century Avatar, Volumes 1 through 3. Her books are available on Amazon or through Grave Distractions Publications. She's um, an amazing lady. I've had her on the show a number of times. And uh, she is a true joy to have uh, visit me. We're having trouble kind of getting to her. Um, do we have her yet, Sean? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yay! <laughs> I didn't know how much more I had to to just kind of go ahead and do the interview both sides of it. Yes, I'm so glad you're here. I was I was going to go into the the next thing I was going to tell everybody was that um, I first became familiar with with um, the 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 material that you're working with. When I was in college and I discovered Henry Lincoln's um, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, it is what I consider one of the books everybody in this in, in the spiritual metaphysical venue or genre should read. And, and it, it awoke in me 
curiosity, fascination. It it absolutely and and for those who have not read Holy Blood Holy Grail, for heaven's sakes, get it and read it. It it was one of the foundational pieces of um, material that Dan Brown used for um, for his amazing book. And and so it it kind of while while both books are fiction, it's kind of like or are they? And and so you have lived and walked in the material that both of these books were based on. So it's it's a thrill to have you with me again tonight. Thank you very much. I look forward to whatever this interview is going to uncover tonight, wherever it takes us. You, you never know here, for sure. <laughs> um, so how did you become fascinated, connected with this material, with the Rennes-le-Chateau um, legend? Still there? Well, either she's thinking real long or she's dropped. So um, I guess we're going to wait for her to call back in. Anyhow, um, this material is is fascinating for those of you who don't know anything about it. It talks of a um, a priest, um, Benier Saunier, I believe is how you pronounce his name, and he was a priest. Um, in Rome Chateau. Um, Gloria, are you there? I am. Oh, okay. I, I just, you went away for a minute, so I wasn't sure. I, I don't know why, but it did, but I called and got patched right back through, so hopefully it'll, uh, it'll be smooth from here. Okay. Well, happily, I've read all your books, so I can go on and rave about them all, all night if I want to, if I have to. Um, when did you become familiar with this material? Uh, about the year 2000, when I was researching the play that would become Magdalene's Mind, uh, which was workshopped in New York City and given a reading in, in uh, Seattle and so forth, I became familiar with what I call the Magdalene mystery. And as I was researching her for this play, there were so many notable threads of research going off in so many directions, I made a list. And it's taken me a good 15 years plus to really track down every single lead and every single thread and go down that road. It's it's just, um, and, and, you know, just if we can sort of briefly, um, the, the, the legend goes that, um, um, uh, uh, Benier, uh, how do you pronounce his first name? Benier Saunier. Um, Berger Saunier. Yes, thank you. Um, he was a priest in, in a very small village in France called, uh, Rennes-le-Chateau, right? Correct. And, and in renovating his church, the story goes, he uncovered material that enabled him to um, to do massive um, work on the church and expand it. And and and, um, and this part is true. This is you know part of the truth of the foundation of the story. And nobody yeah. nobody really knows what it was he discovered. Um, whether it was part of a um, part of a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for? Whether it was money that had been used to um, 
pay back, you know, for for the ransom of of someone at some point in time, or was it something else? And and the something else is where we step into can't prove it, but we can't prove anyhow how he got the money to do the renovations. All we know is for, well, we have some ideas, but it, but just to take your listeners back a little bit further, uh, uh, the priest um, Abbe Berenger Saunier. He and remember in the Da Vinci Code when Sophie's grandfather in the very beginning is um, leaves this ritualistic code behind as his uh, attacker reaches him. Uh, he was Saunier, and, the, and there is the beginning of the makeshift clues that Dan Brown leaves us. But I, I, I tell you that the real story is just so much more interesting. Berenger grew up as a young boy with his family right down the hill from Rennes-le-Chateau, which makes it even more interesting because he wasn't from some faraway place and he was assigned to Rennes-le-Chateau. He lived right down the hill and he knew about the legends of treasure that swirled around Red Day or Rennes-le-Chateau. And it's interesting how he got placed there and then the realities that he faced when he first went up the hill, if you will, and just had to deal with the horrible condition that the church was in and the presbytery was falling apart. Uh-huh. And, and all of a sudden, as he began to partner with, it is believed, Abbe Henri Boudet, who was the priest of, in the neighboring village of Rennes-le-Ben, uh, kind of Rennes-le-Chateau and Rennes-le-Ben seem to go hand in hand, the male and female sites of the earth there, if you will, the waters run in Rennes-le-Ben. Well, Abbe Boudet was a pretty smart guy, and it's believed that a lot of the, uh, the information and the instructions as Saunier began to uh, dig in his church and dig in the cemetery, that instructions were coming from on high, if you will, and they were working together very, very secretively. And, and it's, it's then when the money seems to appear, you know, we can't prove the visits to Paris, but yet they're, they're there. And, and you really have to weave and turn. It's, it's quite the story. But he then rebuilds this garish and lavish church to Mary Magdalene where he has a demon inside as you walk into the church. I mean, you'll never see anything like this. It's crazy. Oh, well, no, and it is. It's an, it, it's an ugly, it's an ugly statue. I mean, it's not the kind of celestial anything you would expect in a church. And, right. Um, it, it just, but, but the story goes that with what he discovered for his time, was so you know the late the late the very late eighteen hundreds what he discovered was so radical at that point in time it's believed that the church holds the key to what he's trying to tell us and you know, Henry Lincoln, among others, have written some really interesting books about what exactly is going on in that church. But again, it's like nothing you've ever seen. But he's he's leaving us a story in stone in the church for for us to figure out when the time was right. Because I do believe that this truth that they uncovered first got Abby um, Jelly of the neighboring Custasa murdered 
and we know for a fact he was murdered. And there seems to be some foul play connected to Saunier and to Boudet. Um, Henry Lincoln himself has told me that. And um, it really reeks of an incredibly complex intrigue story, spies, you know, the Vatican, you name it. It's, it's got it all. Well, and, and, you know, he was put on trial at one time because they, they thought that, you know, they couldn't figure out where, where he was getting the money from. And, um, right. One of the charges was that he was trafficking in masses. And while, while I think he probably was, I mean, he certainly was taking in money uh, for masses, more so than he could probably ever say. But I still don't think that money fully accounts for the lavish uh, Villa Bethania, the Villa Bethany named after where Mary Magdalene or Mary of Bethany would have come from. He built the Tor Magdala, which was this grand library on the cliff of Rennes-le-Chateau. Um, where did he get the money for that? The, the, he did things for the villagers. It was a very poor village. He, he brought, he, he built the water tower. He did things to improve the quality of their lives. He spent a lot of money. And and in in many ways, the the church did not stand in his way. And and let's face it, every church sells masses today. So, you know, it's not like it's not like it was something horrible that he did. But but it was sort of like um, they they've never really discovered how did he generate the money to do everything he did. And one of the premises of, of Lincoln's book and Dan's Brown book is that that the paperwork that he discovered um, verified and and absolutely made it made it clear that that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. I mean, and and that they had children, that they had a family that they raised, and the church didn't want this to come out. So I, I know you know that's. And and if you go back into the the name Ren Le Chateau in Southwest France, it's the place of the uh, the chateau, right? And so when you go to the village even today, you can see the ruins, the hot pool. Hot pool was the family, and you could see the ruins of the chateau that actually somebody just bought it privately and I think I'm hoping they're going to refurbish it because it was really in a state of decay while other things are being refurbished in the village and to make it simple for your audience basically the last residence in that chateau long before Saunière at the time of Abbe Bigou Bijou, Bigou, something like that. He, uh, that is a bloodline family. So they were always guardians of the secrets. That's how this game worked. You know, things that were too dangerous to um, recount in public had to be handed down until the time was right because these guardians, I call them guardians of the grail, always knew there would be a time that would come when this information would finally see the light of day. So they guarded it generation after generation. And that history is in the village itself. So when, so when the French, when, um, when the revolution is happening, um, Abbe Bigu has to flee. He flees over the border into 
to Spain because Rennes-le-Chateau isn't too far from Spain. And he has to take these prized documents and he has to secret them away somewhere. And so it is believed he had them hidden in the church. Okay. So, you know, you, you, you've mentioned something that kind of, you know, we talk about grail mysteries. And, and certainly they're out there and, and people have been searching for whatever the grail is for a very, very long time. And so how, how does anybody determine when the time is right? Well, it's believed in the ancient times. Let's just go back to a story that most people are familiar with. If you think of the time of the birth of Jesus, and you think of the, the star, right, that, that uh, star in the sky, uh, this, this phenomenon, this happening, and you go back to the three wise men, it's believed that they were probably Persian, um, probably astrologers, astronomers, because in that time there was no separation between astrology and astronomy as it, as, as it is today. It was one, and they were brilliant um, astrologers. They watched the heavens for signs. That's what they did. And the cool thing about computers now and some of the software that is available, you can actually begin to go back and reverse engineer these periods of time and find the different astrological, um, astronomical alignments. And they're, they're, because we can do this with the software and the computers that we have now, we can verify certain celestial happenings. So my point of that to answer your question is it seems that the Essenes and the Rex Deus families and those who guarded the grail, it, it seemed as if they could read the heavens um, with a, um, a high degree of knowledge and accuracy. Okay. So, you know, it's kind of like the, um, if you go back into megalithic times and you go into certain structures and you find out that they're aligned to certain planets or constellations or, you know, they have that certain orientation, if you will. That's a very, very ancient and arcane knowledge. And with that came a very, um, very intense and deep and almost inexplicable understanding of the stars and the movement of the stars. Gotcha. And that information has been passed down. So the Essenes, if we, if we talk about the Essenes, they had a pretty good handle on all of that stuff. And, you know, I'm sure there were other influences that helped them understand how this could project forward into the timelines. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering because, you know, I have found that, um, the truth, the real truth, um, will keep hopscotching through time and and looking for a time that welcomes the mysteries that that are there. Whether whether it is the Grail stuff, whether is it, whether it is Atlantis, whether it is you know the mysteries that 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 have been or or even um, the Emerald Tablet Toth material. It feels to me as though they hopscotch through time. Um, in, in, you know, when Henry, when the Holy Blood, Holy Grail came out, everybody was really 
curious and investigating. And then again, when Dan Brown's material came out, again, curious and investigating. And we as a society, as a culture, seem more and more comfortable with accepting the possibilities of what we think or, or our, what we, what we think slash hope, um, are, is contained in this material. And, and it's sort of like it keeps bouncing through time until society says, but of course. And, and then it, then it all unfolds. Exactly, exactly. And, Part of the story of the Rex Deus family. So when I talk about bloodline descendants, I'm talking more about that line of descendants wrapped around the union of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. But the Rex Deus families represent all the priestly lines of the temple. And based on uh, my dear friend, Dr. Tim Wallace Murphy, based on his work, on these families and his own personal experience and, you know, working with some, um, some of the descendants of these Grail families, we'll call them Grail families, um, it, it, it's just amazing how their modus operandi, the way they operated in the world as guardians of this secret knowledge of a lot of it is, is of our ancient, ancient origins and all the knowledge that revolves around those origins, they would adopt the religion, wherever they found themselves in the world, they would adopt the religion of of place, wherever they were at, they would conform, that's the point, they would conform, they did not want to draw attention to themselves, but they would determine in their families who was the gifted child if you will, like Mother Mary was the gifted child of her generation. Jesus was the gifted child of his. And they would impart the secrets. They would bring them through initiation. They would train them. And they would impart these secrets. And they were passed down from generation to generation for at least 2,000 years. Okay. And we are... We are at a point today where people are far more comfortable with the fact that religion as we know it is not what it should be. It has been manipulated and changed and, and incorporated. That the, the belief, the, the simple truths that, that Jesus taught, um, have, have not been, um, acknowledged or brought forward. And, and it does feel as though people are more and more comfortable with saying, all right, so what is the true way to walk? What is the way, you know, how do we walk our pathway and, and do it with integrity and validity? And, and, you know, what is the point of our being here? And what is, what is the truth of, of where we come from? Um, on, on a spiritual level, certainly. You know, accepting the fact that Jesus survived the cross and that he was married and had a, had a wife and children and that there is, um, there is an organization of sorts out there that is trying to bring his truths forward. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it feels like we're almost ready. <laughs> I think so. And I think 
you know, in addition to us being ready, in addition to Holy Blood, Holy Grail opening the door, um, the Da Vinci Code worldwide, the, the impact of that story, but um, there, there have been so many steps, and it is even believed that there is a secret society. Some call it the Priory of Zion. Some say the Priory is a hoax and never existed. Nonetheless, we can look back through time and see see how this information has always been preserved by, again, the guardians of the grail. I mean, we're talking Da Vinci. We're talking Isaac Newton. We're talking about major players in history who took great risk when the Catholic Church in Europe controlled every aspect, or at least tried to, of their lives. That, that they did this always knowing that there, there would be this time. And then we fast forward now to the internet, to 10 years of ancient aliens being on TV, to all the UFO shows that have been on History Channel, um, America on Earth, all these shows, the giants, right? We were talking about that the other day. Oh, yeah. All all these alternative possibilities and things that just really can't be explained away. And the more intelligent we become, the more technologically advanced we become, and the more scientific we become, the more these, these, um, these aspects of the mysteries are being explained. Well, yeah, and, and the Grail families become threads that have been woven through time that 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 have evolved into you know different countries different religions different cultures and and one of the 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 cool things that we started to talk about and I'm glad we didn't go real far cuz I did want to come out with it but but the founders of this country um you know had while they were deists that doesn't mean that they didn't have a purpose to you know, what they were creating here in the United States. And, you know, what were they up, up to in creating this country, this, this society that now we live in? Well, you know, that's a great question. Uh, if we look at, certainly at Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, but Fra- Ben Franklin's really a key. He spent an enormous time in France, mm-hmm. and we know he was a Freemason. We know he spent a lot of time learning about different mysteries uh, from the French. We know for a fact, this is a historical fact, that he was uh, the grand master of, of different Masonic lodges. And one of them is in southwest France, uh, in Carcassonne, which today is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, Lycite. It is just gorgeous to visit. I always bring my groups there when, when I do tours um, because it's really special and it's so well-preserved. We know he was there. We know he was there. That's a fact. The speculation locally in the Rennes-le-Chateau area is that he also was there. Some people believe he was roaming around the parts of Rennes Chateau, um, helping to plan the revolution, you know, the revolution uh, with the Jacobites. I mean, we could get into a lot of history, but we also know as much as we can't really pin Jefferson down, was he a Mason? Uh, was he not? Was he a Templar? Uh, he was beyond brilliant and he was a deist and he, there were just certain things that he just didn't believe in, like the um, we were talking about religion, the um, some of the silliness of religion, of the twisting 
of Jesus. Although he had great respect for Jesus, the teacher and prophet, he didn't have, um, he had very little respect for some of the stories that he knew was fabricated. He wrote his own Bible. Um, if he were to have said the things today with the media that he said at the time he was, uh, his voice was heard throughout the land in America, I don't know what they would do to him. But you, you need to go back and look at that stuff, you know, general audience, I'm saying, because it's really startling to, to read what Jefferson really thought. So, so these men were founding a country based on Certainly, Francis Bacon from England, he plays into the mix. So you start to get into the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, you know, Bacon's uh, New Atlantis. You know, the thing about how they were forming America had everything to do with Bacon's vision. You know, he inherited that and brought it forward of the New Atlantis. It was a place where people could be free and evolve. Yeah, and you wonder, have we? I think we have. I think uh, I, I think that if we look at the media and get hung up on that slice of life, we don't think we are. We we look at things and we say, oh dear God. And you and I, Barbara, we were talking about the astrological chart of the United States and how we find ourselves at this time at a crossroads. Looking, having our shadow side, all that ugliness, all that weirdness, that negativity, what's below the surface, it's, it's just being kicked up in our faces for us to see, get a, get a checkpoint of where we're really at. And do we, the question is, do we go back to the principles of the founders or do we just go further into decay? Well, and you mentioned also that, that there was a secret destiny for this country. I mean, were they really trying to create a new Atlantis or, or create the, the space for something like Atlantis to be recreated here? Cause, cause if, if that's what we've turned into, we, we made a wrong turn someplace. Well, Atlantis made a wrong turn too someplace according to the stories I've read. Uh-huh. So I always find that interesting that as we approach what I consider to be the coming leap of consciousness more so, not that we haven't been gradually doing it decade by decade since the 60s, because we really have, but this leap that comes, it comes simultaneously as we find ourselves on a, on a very precarious, in a very precarious place in terms of the earth, in terms of the environment, in terms of climate change, in terms of corruption, in terms of the corporatocracy of America. And, you know, I, I went back and looked at some Thomas Jefferson quotes, um, and I thought this was a very interesting one, very appropriate for today. He says, the end of democracy and the defeat of the American Revolution will occur when government falls into the hands of lending institutions and moneyed incorporations. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Pretty crazy, isn't it? That, that chalks it up to where we are today, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the I, I, two directions I want to go into. Um, first of all, um, Freemasonry and Knights Templar, um, I, I've recently done a lot more 
looking into the the Freemasonry and the Knights Templar, and they are they are they are not not one and the same, but kind of they are. They sort of one evolved into the other, uh, in, in my opinion. And there 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 is such an amazing amount of spirituality in that particular organization. And I'm I'm not talking Knights Templar. I'm talking about the the Freemasons of today. And it's it's amazing how the spiritual aspects of of you know thousands of years ago are have been here and have been taught to people throughout well at least here in the United States and and then you know going back into into Europe before that 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 this organization while it doesn't you know it it, it it's hidden in plain sight so to speak and there is a deep spirituality connected to those people who study beyond the Blue Lodge. And- oh, exactly. Um, my friend, Dr. Tim Wallace Murphy, who was here um, visiting for a couple of weeks, he's, he's a Freemason. Um, Tim is a prolific author. He's um, in his mid-80s now, still writing, has just come out with another new book, and he's a, he's a brother. He's a Freemason. And so some of the lodges in New York have him in New Jersey, and then I do some private events in Connecticut. This year we went up to New Hampshire, and his message above and beyond the mysteries and who the, who the families of the Grail were and all of that, he says at the core is love, compassion, and service. Uh-huh. And I I do believe that the Masons, um, uh, you know, those who really are following the path, they understand that. Now, it's hidden in plain sight because what they knew and what was handed down to them through the Templars, and even in the ancient rites in ancient Egypt, which a lot of Freemasonry and Templarism it, it it always goes back to it, it goes back further than ancient Egypt. It really goes back to, in my opinion, Enoch, the Book of Enoch, and perhaps the the starting point is Atlantis. Uh-huh. And so they have not only been the guardians of certain information and keeping alive certain rituals in their initiatory degrees. You know, for, for, for people to remember. So the story is brilliant. The way the story of Enoch and others has been kept alive through Freemasonry all this time. Even if an initiate, um, had no clue what was really going on. And just memorized it because just like in school, you gotta memorize it, you gotta pass the test, you gotta move on. Um, but you know, for those who are listening, in the ancient world and up until now, it's always been important to follow the pathway of initiation. That is the ancient pathway of illumination. And that is what Jesus was also following. And he himself is a whole interesting subject of, no, not this poor carpenter who was powerless, but a person, you know, born into the Essene community, which was highly conscious 
um, and uh, an uncle, great uncle, who was fabulously wealthy and could provide uh, ships for him to go all over the world and study with all masters and all streams of knowledge, India, Tibet, uh, the UK, Britain, uh, Wales, Scotland, France. I mean, I could go on and on. You know, it's still, even with his knowledge, it was being acquired year after year after year and initiations to to take us from A to Z. And, oh. and, and that you know, comes forward even in Freemasonry today. What those in the inner circle know, those in just beginning don't know. They can't know. Well, you know, there's there's something, and I'm not sure where it is, it may be even in the Bible, but, but you know, and, and your point absolutely in, in the memorization and, and, you know, imprinting upon the consciousness something and that that phrase with eyes to see and ears to hear um sometimes you know we're not ready consciously higher consciously and sometimes you know it becomes a trigger to an opening to an understanding of a higher realm and and so i think that that what what goes on is phenomenal. I, I don't think most people understand the relationship of Josephus to Jesus and how Joseph uh, Joseph is really um, Christ. There there's um, is it a well? It's a well in France, someplace that that they call Jesus well, isn't there? Well, there's one in Cornwall in uh, England in the UK um, that they clearly call that, and the legends of. Uh, the young Jesus being in Cornwall with his uncle, who was, just for your, for your listeners, Joseph of Arimathea was a family member. He was most likely Mother Mary's brother, although there's some debate, but he's a family member. Very wealthy. He's, he's got the Mercurio title. He's respected by the Romans. He's a, he's a metals trader and miner. Uh, he heads that organization. He, I think he had the, some of the secretive maps of the Phoenicians because, you know, the metals were, were highly prized and who had the metals had weaponry and other advantages. So he was, he was, um, he was well respected by them. And so it, there's a lot of story in Cornwall, which I was, I brought a group to last year, where we looked at all of that, and, um, the, you know, the legends are very strong with the people there, that he, you know, walked those lands, um, because Joseph was always there, you know, um, mining the tin, uh, for the Romans. And so we have him in other places as well. There are very strong, um, legends of him as Saint Isa, uh, both in India and I believe it's Tibet or Nepal. Um, fascinating, oh, yeah. fascinating stuff all over the all over the world. And the person that I see who facilitated that, at least a bunch of that, was Joseph of Arimathea because his ships were everywhere. He was he was not a a a miner. He was um, a magnet, a a metals uh, trader and. Um, tycoon, um, you know, he, that was his position. So, you know, Jesus had privy to a lot of, a lot of places where the legends have him traveling. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I know, and I did misspeak. I said Josephus. That was the Greek guy. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, I, you know, I, a J word. What can I say? Um, <laughs> but, um, it's a lot I, to remember. That's for sure. Yeah. Yes, 
but they do in Tibet. Nicholas Rorick, when he was traveling in Tibet, he saw the documents that, that did go back to that period in time and validated that Jesus was at that particular temple. I've forgotten which one it is, but I remember because um, I got fascinated with Nicholas Rorick at one time because of his artwork. Um, and his artwork, for for anybody that's done any reading, is um, is used as illustrations in um, in in the last the, the the lost years of Jesus and um, a couple of other books that the author now skips my mind. You know, I, I wish they would not do that when I'm about to grab onto them. But um, well, you know, another thing that's interesting about Rorick, and you know, yes, he was. He was looking for, we'll say, the Holy Grail. But the the fascinating thing about Rorick is that he was very connected to President FDR's vice president. They were both Masons. Uh, Wallace and FDR were Masons. Um, They were looking for secretive information, as was Hitler at the time. So I see it as... You know, Hitler was that dark force, but he was looking for everything esoteric. He was looking for all the ancient power tools. He was looking for the scrolls. And at the same time, FDR, high-ranking Freemason, understood he was highly initiated. His vice president, um, they dedicated the master's building in New York City, uh, Riverside Drive and... Oh, 105th, something like that. In 1929, they dedicated it to Rorick. And Rorick went around the world looking for certain things. He had his official mission, and then he had the covert mission. And so I look at FDR, when I, when I look at the history coming into America, to me it seems like, the for me, the last traceable guardian of the grail that I can really define is FDR, President FDR. Uh, after that, the trail seems to go cold for me. But, you know, there again, when you mentioned Warwick, it's like, boy, what a story that is and oh, yeah. how that connects to to the Grail. Yeah, no, and, he, he was amazing. He was he was brilliant. And there is in New York City uh, a museum of his artwork, and I've been able to go down there and, and um, you know, stand in front of these canvases. He, he painted with tempera. Uh, on canvas and he literally melted snow to mix the tempera to, to paint the paintings. And when you realize that he did this, you know, on donkeys, um, it's amazing. And he and his, his wife were also co-founders of the Theosophical Society as well. So, um, amazingly gifted and talented. And, and curious, uh, curious as it is, because so many, trails, so many avenues, so many roads on this story are so fascinating in and of themselves. If you've been to the museum on the Upper West Side in New York, there's a portrait of Helena, of his Uh wife, and she has that famous casket in front of her. Uh And, And she's also got a rose. Have you seen that one? I have, yeah. No, I've been to the museum a couple times. It's phenomenal. Yeah, and and so there there is a nod to Rosicrucianism or you know sub rosa of secrecy, but that particular um, casket they call it 
it was delivered to them when they were working in Paris on, I think, a theatrical production. Not positive, but I think so. And it, it's even believed that maybe Jean Cocteau gave it to them, and he was considered a grandmaster of a secret society. Um, nonetheless, it, it's, whatever was in that casket is sometimes considered the grail itself and it kind of goes full circle to the very beginning and that was called and, and, and he painted it in his paintings and you see him in the museum the Chintamani stone and it lights up yeah oh his his paintings and it was Elizabeth Clare Prophet that, that used his works in, in her books as illustrations but all you have to do is google Nicholas Rorick and you can see his paintings and, and in person they come alive and, you know, I, I waited till nobody was around and I touched one. And, and it just, <laughs> well, again, I, you're not supposed to, but when you, when you know the story of how it came to be, you know, it means so much more to touch something that is, you know, been lugged on a donkey over the Himalayas and stuff like that. It's just, it's something like taking you back to that time and that space and that exciting energy that, that he must have been experiencing on these travels because, um, it, it's, the artwork is just outstanding and it does glow. And in person, it, it, it does more than glow. It radiates an energy that is profound and, uh, it's it's definitely worth at least looking at the artwork because um, sometimes it looks simplistic and then and then suddenly it starts to catch you and and it's it's magical. Um, yeah. And and he was he was uh, he also designed um, the uh, stage settings and costumes for several um, several ballets. He was very famous. Maybe that's for what that he was doing well. in Paris. Yeah, it may it may well be. He worked with um, theater, and and he was just an amazing man. His father wanted him to be a lawyer. He wanted to be a doctor, so he became both, and then he became a painter. So amazing! It's it's just amazing. And if you you know if we take that that um, that placeholder of Rorick and Wallace and. All the people that showed up at the, uh, when the master's building was dedicated to Rorick. I mean, if you go back and look at who, you know, the Manly P. Hall, Albert Einstein, I mean, there, there was an extraordinary group of people. If you look on the other side, because I think of FDR as a guardian of the grail, if you, if you will, and of the light. And if you look at the other side of the coin at that time was Adolf Hitler. Right. And uh, in my in my book, Adolf Hitler was certainly the dark. Interestingly enough, as we kind of follow certain esoteric threads there, they had placed Otto Rahn in the Pyrenees, in the Mont Segur area, believing that that was the mountain of the Holy Grail. And Hitler was into all things esoteric. And there's more. There's actually more to the story that I would like to bring in on Hitler's side because it will make more sense, I think, to the audience. 
Sure. So, so they have Otto Rahn, who's looking at this mysterious uh, Montsalvat in, in the Grail Castle. And many people believe that was Montsegur, which is this sacred mountain. It's officially called the Pog in southwest France, about, it's about 40 minutes from Rennes-le-Chateau, maybe half hour drive in the most beautiful countryside. And Ron supposedly commits suicide in that area. But what's really believed is that once the Nazis got whatever it was that they needed or were looking for, that they killed him. And there are even other stories. And that they took a bunch of the goods. Now, here's where the story gets a little weird um, and a little interesting, but I think the audience is probably ready for this kind of stuff because they've, you know, there was a there was a series on um, history called Finding Hitler, where oh, yeah. they pretty much determined that Hitler, you know, made it down to Argentina. So, so the point is, is we're we send out Rorik looking for something around the world. Here we have Hitler dispatching Otto Rahn. And these are facts. I mean, he was in the Pyrenees. You know, he was in Montsegur. And we know that Hitler was looking for all things esoteric. But here's where we tie in an unusual strain of the Book of Enoch, Freemasonry, and we'll say Atlantis. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm just going to put this out there. You can let it go in one ear and out the other. But there are those who understand the Masonic traditions, and they say, now, mind you, just to, just to say this one little aside, if you go to George Washington's museum in Arlington, you will find a mural, a painting on the wall, it's a, it's a mural, where they have focused on the retrieval of the information um, from Enoch's vault. That was very important. And they put it in the George Washington uh, Memorial Museum in Arlington. So he was a Freemason. Um, it was important. But why? Why? Okay, why was Enoch and the retrieval of his information important? Why is it in George Washington's museum? And why, perhaps, was Hitler looking for the same stuff? Okay. So it, it kind of goes like this, and I'm really oversimplifying, but for purposes of tonight, that's okay. It's believed that underneath the temple in Jerusalem, which is where the Rex Deus families emerged, having to protect the information, because remember, Jesus said that you know the temple will be raised, it will be destroyed, and it was. And the Romans plundered a certain mount, but it has always been believed that below that temple were the vaults of Enoch. And it's believed that the very ancient information was stored under there. Um, technologies, things that were very advanced, you know, things that we're just beginning to understand now. And so it's believed that all of that highly technological information that probably people couldn't understand for some time was also stored deep under the earth there. Well, and yeah, it, that, does that make sense? Yeah, and it's similar to the Emerald Tablet material as well. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, and, and, and according to Enoch, you know, he put, all of the all of the wisdom of the ages, so to speak, on two pillars. 
and right. there there was there was one with the the humanities and there was one with the uh science and the Pythagoras started to um decode the the mathematical stuff and and that um the other stuff was you know coming out in in a different in a different place but the material was preserved through time so it doesn't doesn't make it's not a surprise no, it's not a surprise, but, but think about this. It is believed by some. Now, whether it's true or not, we don't know, but certainly many people are leaning this way, and a lot of very solid researchers are, are leaning this way in our ancient origins, that when the time came for the Great Flood, and we do know a flood of some kind happened on the face of the earth, when that time came, and certain knowledge was secreted away, it's believed, and most people now are pretty open to this whole idea, it's believed that there were ancient races here that were more advanced, and we see it in certain ancient cultures. We see it in certain Egyptian temples like Abydos, and it's in the um, the Hindu tradition as well, the Vimanas, and, and all this stuff going on. So we do believe that there were more accelerated, advanced civilizations here, and it's believed they they, they kind of hightailed it out of here and left us, us, we, you and me, and people listening. And if we were, if our DNA was tinkered with, it's believed that they kind of uh, dumbed us down a bit and whoever was going to survive was going to survive. And lo and behold, people did survive. You know, Noah, Noah wasn't the only person to survive in the Great Flood, obviously. Yeah. And it's believed that the Essenes were one of the key groups that were waking up perhaps earlier than others. Okay, or maybe gotta, there were some from these advanced cultures who survived in their ranks yeah, or gotta, were gotta, in fact them. Got to slow you down here. We're, we're, we're coming up on a break. And okay. I, 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 music will start shortly and, and we'll go to a five-minute break. But I just – this material fascinates me and it, 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 it hopefully will fascinate and – and make other people curious so that so that they can kind of get get involved in it and and we'll start with the flood as soon as we come back and you know the, the, my clock and Sean's clock and everybody else's clock is <laughs> it would be nice if they all agreed but they don't uh but he did give me the 2 minute warning a couple of minutes ago so the music is going to come in here shortly and and we'll have a 5 minute break but but, you know, re- remember we stopped at the flood because also the giants survived the flood. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, I'm, they say there was also rumors, stories someplace that, that actually Noah fed one of the giants and, and he kind of hung on to driftwood or whatever and, and, and survived the deluge. But, um, clearly they didn't, they didn't all get wiped out because, there, there again, something else that, that keeps coming back at us and saying, you know, you've forgotten us. Time is, you know, don't try to erase us because we actually were here. And there, even though you can try to hide the proof and try to cover it up and try to ignore it, you know, we still, it's a, it's a piece of our history that unless we put it in place, the picture isn't complete. And th- that's, I agree. What, that's what bugs me there's so much of history that you know some of it 
we've just has been overlooked because they didn't think it significant or it didn't fit into what they felt was appropriate to teach or whatever. And I think what outrages me as a teacher is that, that so much of it is missing from our history. Our history is so rich and so full of magic. So. Yep. Yep. I'm, still, I'm still listening for the music. I, a two-minute warning to me is two minutes, and there it is. <laughs> we'll be back in about three minutes. the necessary information to assist you in confidently living through just about any survival situation. Is survival and gardening, off-grid living, medical knowledge, or even natural or man-made EMPs on your list of personal concerns? Do you have your documents and your personal information in a safe place in your hands where you know where it is? Well, check out our preloaded EMP-proof thumb drive. Over 3 gigs of survival documents and how-tos, plus the USDA offline food preservation website, and much, much more, including a surprise bonus we just can't tell you about here. With plenty of room left over to store your most important documents. Imagine if a mega virus or a computer failure took out your bank, or all the banks for that matter. Are your banking records safe in your hands so when they get things fixed and repaired, you can say, hey, look, this is what I had. You have it. I want it back. Is your personal data safe? family records, addresses, phone numbers, we'll squeeze on over to freedomslips.com. Yes, that's www.freedomslips.com. Click the banner on the homepage for the EMP-proof bullet drive to get the full scoop of everything that we offer. So, folks, keep your data safe for your peace of mind. Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent news story, and I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. On the go? Still want to listen? Don't have one of those fancy phones with too many buttons. Don't know what an app is? Or you don't even care? Well, we got you here at Revolution Radio. Now you can dial in 24-7 to listen to our shows. We have a number for Studio A and Studio B. And best of all, it's free. Don't forget, your carrier charges for your cell phone provider may apply, though. So check with your cell provider to make sure. So ready? Here you go. Get a pen. Here's the number. Studio A is 712-432-6958. And Studio B is 716-748-0112. Thank you very much for listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station in the world.
in our narco-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more... Be major... quiet. I order you to be quiet. Look, you stupid bastard. You've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look. It's just a flesh wound. I don't believe... We've seen such a display of courage, skill, nerve, breaks, and stupidity. I'll do you for that. Oh, what? Come here. What are you going to do? Bleed on me? I'm invincible. You're a loony. The Black Knight always triumphs. Roundtable Live, Monday through Friday, 1 a.m. till 4 a.m. Eastern Time. Bring your mind, bring your ideas, bring your voice. King Arthur had nothing on us. Yeah, Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and freedomslips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. This is Nightlight. I'm Barb DeLong. Thank you for tuning in. Sorry about that. My microphone went wonky. Thank you for tuning in to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Please help endorse our efforts and time by visiting the station support page and making a donation from station owner to all levels of management, the entire production crew, and every host. We all work without compensation of any kind, except, of course, for the joy of being a part of a very unique and special station one that supports a true sense of freedom. Any donation, even a small one, is greatly appreciated and keeps freedom ever-present out there for those who seek independent thought and new paradigms and philosophies. Gloria, we're back. Um, so we were at the flood. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so trying to help people understand as – if we're out there and we've had this incredible uh, flood globally and some have survived, we have to begin to rebuild our world and our lives. And in that, and there is geological evidence of the flood. We see it cross-culturally and we know it existed. And so it's believed in deeper uh, Masonic thought and secrets, the secrets that were handed down, that there, that in this remembrance, the Essenes were the ones who were looking for the scrolls, looking for the answers, and they had great libraries, um, more than just in Qumran, that held this information, and it passed through... Oh, ancient Egypt, it, it passed through the Holy Land and it dispersed elsewhere and it had to be kept private. So if we fast forward all the way forward to a time we, we can all be more familiar with and that's World War II and FDR and Hitler, 
I, I, I want to make this point that, remember, it is believed that post-World War II that the United States took in the Nazi scientists because they were working on very, very advanced uh, concepts, um, testing, and this had a lot to do with their belief not only in these advanced technologies, but in visitors from other worlds. Oh, yeah, that and was, that so, was... you know, it's believed that either the Russians were going to get the technology and the knowledge, or America was, and we took it. Yeah, well, that's Operation Paperclip. Yeah. And, so uh, if Hitler did survive, which, again, they had the History Channel show, uh, hist- you know, finding Hitler or hunting Hitler, whatever it was, mm-hmm. and we have then the tie-in to our own government, you know, by the time of the Roswell incident, and, you know, we haven't even talked about Tesla and, and, and what that was, but we know that there was this, this super advancement of technology, a lot of it today, you know, we're not we're not even privy to a lot of it. Although our tax dollars tend to support it, and they siphon money off into the budgets, um, you know, if we didn't have someone like Edward Snowden telling us some of the things that he did, we wouldn't know quite the capacity of of some of the technology. So, not to get too far down that rabbit hole, but the point being is that the information that I think catapulted us technologically had a lot to do with going back to the knowledge and the Grail families and the documents and the, this this ancient fight between the sons of light, which the Essenes considered themselves, and the sons of darkness. Mm-hmm. Well, the sacred female is certainly something that, that is, again, going through a, a rebirthing. I mean, when you look at the the, ba- the Basques, was it the Basques in France that were basically um, focusing on Mary Magdalene? Um, I think you're thinking of the Cathars? The Cathars, yes. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's in the generally in the Basque region. It's very close to it. Yeah, the Cathars are an interesting bunch. They were in um, medieval France and other parts of Europe, but they really make their mark there because a lot of the noble families um, – were, were Cathars, and they had equality in the priesthood among men and women. They had a blended belief system of, of Gnosticism, duality, probably some Egyptian and Pythagorean influence because that all filtered in through the communities on the Mediterranean Sea, and then it made its way in. It's, it's only a couple hours in from, from the Mediterranean coast there. So you have the Cathars, and yeah, they believed they believed in that. They hated the Vatican. They hated the Roman Catholic Church because they understood the corruption. They understood the lie. And they were, in their own way, in their own remote lands, were practicing a heresy that was far truer to the teachings of the way than certainly the church was um, promoting in its doctrine. Well, didn't uh, the didn't the Pope try to wipe them out and did a pretty good job at one point? Oh yeah, did a pretty pretty darn good job. I and mean, that's why when we were talking about Montsegur and Otto Rahn and Hitler, Montsegur was the it wasn't really the last Cathar 
castle to fall, as is sometimes said, but in 1244, it was symbolically, um, it, well, what happened was the Vatican mercenaries um, basically choked off the food and water supply and isolated the Cathars in these high hilltop um, fortresses. And you can see them in France to this day. They're, some are more preserved than others, but they're, they're all in extraordinary um, places. And when they came across the over 200 parfaits, the perfected ones, the priesthood more, they said, if you recant your faith, we'll, we'll spare your life. Um, and if not, it's into the fires. Mm-hmm. They chose to go into the fires rather than to rather than to recant their faith and live a lie. They wanted to be free, and they they just believed to the core in their teachings. And so they willingly, along with a few of the mercenaries who somehow converted when whatever they witnessed at the top of the pog there in Montsegur, and they willingly walked into the fires. So it is one of those stories that goes down in infamy because of the nature of their defiance and their truth. If you if you look at a picture of Mount Segur and 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 understand the history of what happened, they were surrounded, they were starved out, they were and it isn't it isn't it kind of a little reminiscent of Masada? Oh, it is so, you know, I'm so glad you said that because it's not only reminiscent of Masada, the fortress itself. I, I remember my brother telling me, I think it was last year, um, on, I think, mainstream TV it was, it wasn't a cable channel, there was the story of Masada as told through the women. And it was two women who give the history to Josephus, who was the Jewish historian for the Roman Empire, and I, I, the Dove Keepers, I think it was called. And my brother recommended it, and I said to myself, ah, I think this is probably going to be hokey, I don't know. But I sat and I watched it. It was a two-part series, and it was done really well. It told the story from the, from the female perspective. It did not shy away from, from the sexuality of the women and what got them in trouble and, and the passion and the affairs. I mean, it was just amazing. It was really an interesting um, series called The Dove Keepers. But when I looked at the fortress of Masada, I almost fell off my chair because I thought, oh, my God, these are the Cathar castles. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, when, and, and especially when you, you know, what happened? They were surrounded, they were starved out, um, and, and, you know, it, and, and it does, in, at Masada, there were some who escaped, and with Montsegura, the same thing. They, they went down the backside of the mountain, I, I do believe that they, you know, that, that they didn't think anybody would be able to get out that way, so they weren't covering it as closely. Um, so, and again, you know, people standing up for their belief system and, and saving what was precious to them so that they could, you know, they were protecting secrets, they were protecting information, and they were protecting magic in both places. And they were protecting bloodline descendants. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so we come to a time where, where, um, 
it's not female worship, but it's more god it's it's more goddess oriented than than ever before and and yet our founding forefathers did bring the sacred goddess into a lot of things into into statuary into all aspects of even even washington dc as it stands now oh they sure did i mean there were 40 um 40 pegs, if you will, uh, marking out the boundaries of D.C. in the beginning, and 40 is always a significant number, but they were done in a diamond or womb shape, and that begins the womb of the goddess, the city of the goddess. It is said that they founded Washington, D.C. on the God Meridian, which is part of the 77-degree longitude. Um, they, of course, they had the goddess in, um, depicted throughout Washington, D.C., and when you go there, with, even to this day, with an initiated eye, you see it. It's, in, it's hidden in plain sight. You can read the code. You just have to be initiated in the code, the Masonic code, and part of that certainly included the, um, the understanding of the goddess. And here's another, um, this is another example. When the Pentagon, you know, that uh, five-pointed star is connected to Venus and the goddess and the sacred feminine, um, you know, if you think of the Pentagon in, you know, as a shape in a building, it's kind of, you know, different. And uh, the fact that that five-pointed star can be traced in the inside, when they were breaking ground on it, I guess FDR must have got a hold of its placement because remember location and placement is critically important in the grid work, which is a, which is an aspect of this we haven't even touched on. Jefferson was really into this, um, very much so, and it's and it's left in his building, so it can be measured to this day. So FDR had the you know the plans changed at the very last minute to conform with a certain measurement that can be found in Washington, D.C., and this is the work of Alan Butler, and he's written a great book on, um, I think it's called uh, Washington, D.C., City of the Goddess. And the the reason why the megalithic measurement, that megalithic yard, and is is so important as a as a as a telling sign is when that was used in the ancient times, there were more um, matriarchal societies. So this stuff is so arcane and, and obscure, but yet when you know the code, it's right there. And they obviously felt, I mean, they they aligned certain buildings to to the rising of the star Sirius, and that is most often um, associated with Isis, the, the ancient Egyptian fertility uh, mother goddess Isis. Well, and look at the look at the the. Um, I mean, we we have um, Egyptian monoliths there. Um, we have in Washington. We have them in New York. There, there's one in in um, 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 Paris. Paris, I think, and and in also in uh, Great Britain. I mean, we've we've got. These obelisks that take. Oh us yeah, I mean, even even in the Vatican, you know, St. Peter's Square. Yeah, there, it's a it's a very important. Not only is it decorative and symbolic, but it is part of what is believed, kind of an antenna communication system, because if there's one thing that the ancients were really good at, 
somehow they understood there was a global grid and placement of certain um, structures, objects, later cathedrals, you know, going through the timelines, you find them on the same nodal points, points of energy. And even when America was sighted, the, the, the Northeast Corridor in particular, uh, between Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C., it's considered a geomantic corridor. And there's another uh, author I know out in Chico, California, Court Lindell, who is doing some fabulous work on identifying all of these structures and lines throughout the world. And he's, he's just got the code figured out. It just synced in his head one day. And he continues to make the connections between the angles or the azimuths, they're called, then the very interesting structures that are placed upon them and how they all connect and who the families are. And I'm telling you, this is a very thoughtful, deliberate web. And one of, we find this stuff going through Monticello, going through, I think, Poplar Forest. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was very aware of this particular system. The Romans used it. So what it did was it imbued power into place. So it's like Chart Cathedral in, in, you know, outside of Paris in Chart. That was placed upon a Druid uh, stronghold, a mound, a, uh, a sacred ceremonial location that had been already imbued with that energy for quite a long time, and seven uh, rivers converged there. So when the Templars had Chart Cathedral built there, they were using the power of the earth, of the telluric current, of the energy, and the water to rise up into the great cathedral and provide an upliftment of consciousness for the pilgrim, the spiritual pilgrim. And so when certainly the northeast, and, and, and we see it in other areas of um, America, that this understanding was continued, and it's about bringing power to place. And it's another part of the work of the Guardians of the Grail, because it is often thought that whoever controls the grids controls consciousness. And that's a very arcane part of this story. Um, the, the grids, I mean, I understand PowerPoints and, and vortexes and grids and things like that. It seems to me that the the grids were they always there or were they placed there well that's an interesting question i don't know but i do know if you go back into the ancient of days and you go to these you know structures that are thousands of years old and i mean we're talking about Oh, well, you know, of course, in the UK, Stonehenge and Avebury, and of course, in Ireland, you have Newgrange and, um, you know, the Giza uh, Pyramid, you know, on the plateau there, the Great Pyramid in Giza in Egypt. I mean, they all do seem to be erected on what would be a PowerPoint or grid or ley line. So whether there was a species that predates that, that created the grid and then those points were put on the grid or whether it was always here, I don't know. But I know I've gone back and, and walked and traveled to many of these places and there's an undeniable power and spirit of place in these locations. 
it's just not arbitrary. Well, yeah, and, you know, knowing that they go back thousands of years, it, we can, I, we identify it and we can, we can plot it on the globe because we have that technology, but thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, there, there was no way to, theoretically, to identify them, and yet you find all of these ancient, ancient, ancient temples, monuments, um, sites of pilgrimage. Um, they're, you know, built on top of one another. Um, and, and, and so it just seems to me like there has to be, um, it doesn't feel to me as though it was there. It feels as though it was placed there because there is a symmetry to it. There is a pattern to it. It's not well, arbitrary. That could very well be. I mean, another thing that we're discovering in this modern time are, are underground, um, exhaustive, uh, lengthy, complex underground tunnels. And so yeah. one of the more recent ones I'm aware of, they, a, a tunnel system from Scotland to Turkey, underground tunnel system, you know, with breathing holes and, you know, really the whole bit, you know, not just a, somebody dug out a little, a little space to run and hide from a predator. These were complex systems. And Scotland to Turkey is a pretty far distance, and that's not the only tunnel system around. But that one's been proven now. I mean, this is fairly recent, and it's, you know, it, it, it's very exciting. And so, you know, a lot of times you bump up against that, too, in this realm, that, you know, were the tunnels here or, or who created them? Because it seems like they've been here for a very long time. Yeah, there's also a huge complex under the Giza Plateau. Um, yeah. Two different levels, two or three different levels. And the chambers that, that they, you know, they've done ground penetrating radar. They can't, of course, dig there anymore, but, um, but, but these are huge, huge spaces and they don't know, uh, you know, there are chambers and connective tunnels to them and there are different levels. The levels don't seem to connect, but, but, you know, on, on each, you know, level, there are massive, huge, huge chambers and they have no idea what those are. I think they're going to do some drilling to see if they can at least pop into them and then put some cameras or something into them. But, but yeah, I mean, and, and we keep uncovering more and more and more of our history and technology that, that couldn't, couldn't possibly have been and yet obviously was. And, and I, I agree, and I think I think if you know if we if we keep this focused on America too, I think if Jefferson in Washington, uh, Ben Franklin were privy to this arcane information uh, and understood its power and its influence, and I think if they knew that they were creating the big idea that was the new Atlantis that they had to use these arcane principles so that that overriding intelligence would help guide America. It had been done before in other places, but now it was being done here in a different way because the Catholic Church at that time didn't have the empire that it had in Europe. 
Right. You know, because it really was a vestige of, you know, it was a, it was it was a holdover of the Holy Roman Empire. You know, well, when, the Holy Roman the, Catholic Church evolved from the Roman Empire, in my opinion. So, you know, here it was to be used to promote the grand idea of freedom, of freedom of its people, so that we could pursue our spiritual evolution. Now that, yeah, yeah, yes. But when you're looking at it, it's basically just just about the Atlantic Corridor that was the United States. And after that time frame, the country was expanded greatly by, by you know, new generations as they came up. And where where I can see the, the hot points, hot points, so to speak, in the initial 13 colonies, does that does that transfer over to the other? To the rest of the country that was that was you know um, that was gathered in later time frames. You know it does, and and I'll throw something out there. This may seem bizarre to some, but I'm going to throw it out there. So maybe some listeners who really will appreciate this tidbit. It's you know how the Oak Island show on History Channel is very popular right now. The two brothers, the Lagina brothers, who are you know using all kinds of engineering um, knowledge to dig for the treasure at Oak Island. Another another grid point, if you will, in this whole mystery. Uh, were the Templars there? Was there treasure there? It is believed by those, um, and I'm one of them, who really believes in the grid, the arcane knowledge of the grids and, and the power inherent in the earth and how we've used that um, to rise civilizations and cultures. Um, it is believed that Prince Henry Sinclair came over here in 1398 in that mysterious voyage or two, and, you know, that connects back to Rosslyn Chapel and the maze, and how did they know, you know, it didn't exist in Scotland, so they had to have been making trips to the New World, and, you know, we know the Vikings were here now, and, and, and so on and so forth, so yeah. there was this idea of, of rebooting these ancient grid systems, which were really basically Atlantean in nature. And then the United States began to be formed more in the Northeast Quadrant. Uh, but there, but remember, who who greatly expanded the territory of the United States? Thomas Jefferson through the Louisiana Purchase, right? Right. Yeah. And it is believed that there again, like you know, Rorick and FDR or Otto Rahn and Hitler, it's believed that when he when Jefferson set out sent out Lewis and Clark to go explore the land, that they actually had a covert mission back then, just like, you know, I mean, this MO gets played out over and over again, and they had a secret agenda, and it was more to find uh, grail colonies, descendants. Um, uh, for Irish, too, something about the Irish? Well, that's a whole other story, but they were looking for certain things. Let's let's just keep it that. And and so there was that addition, but also again, FDR, he he created some notable structures on grid points in the United States. Again, this is some of the work that Court is doing, and it's the inner um, the Peace Garden in out west, north the north west, and I don't know if it's it's right near the Canadian border. Um, the International Peace Garden, uh, Hoover Dam. There were other certain locations. So we do see that 
knowledge being extended in other areas, and I know they're finding things in California now, too. So it does seem to have been repeated in certain places. It's fascinating. And, you know, you, you kind of wonder, you know, all this has taken place in our past. You wonder, are there people in place now in government that have the same knowledge or, or are they skipping a generation? Well, I believe if there, I, I know that there are people all over the world with this knowledge right now as we speak. Um, but are they in government? I would have to say from my perspective that if they are, they are really veiled because I'm not seeing anyone, not in the political system, in other areas, in other ways. And I know the people are out there. I, I, I meet them all the time and they're oh, yeah. amazing people, but, but in politics, our politics are pretty dark right now. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the things we did, we did speak of was that we are going through some sort of evolution revolution right at the moment. And, and that does transfer into politics as well. But, but I, I really, you know, I'd rather focus on, on the fact that, that people are waking up, that, that, that saying of, you know, with eyes to see and ears to hear, that there are so many more today than ever before that are becoming more spiritually aware than, than ever before. And it's, it's a very exciting time to be here. It really is, and I'd like to share this uh, story that my buddy, Dr. Tim Wallace-Murphy, shared a couple of years ago. It wasn't just this time in um, when he was here. It was the last time he was here, which was a few years ago, um, because, again, I'm big on this whole. And when I when I read the books, Rex Deus and Custodians of Truth, because there's two, and the reason why there's two on these Rex Deus families, um, these families of the grail that held this knowledge and understanding, um, the, the way the second volume came into being was that after Tim put out, they put out the first book, they got a call from this um, person, definitely a bloodline person, and they thought that this person was just going to, you know, ridicule them, ream them out, whatever, and, and oh boy, here it comes. And the person said on the other end, you know, why didn't you uh, reach out to me? Um, because you, ha- you have it right, but you don't have the whole story. And thus, Custodians of Truth was born to fill in the gaps of some of who these people are in history. So with that backdrop, Tim was saying at the end of this talk that he had visited a Rex Deus family, I don't know, maybe it was somewhere in the UK, and this was maybe about five years ago, okay. maybe, maybe, give or take. And... Um, when he met with them, I think the question was asked, are, are they aware of what's going on? And he said some families were, you know, kind of lost in the sauce, while, while others were right there, have held it for all this time, and are conscious and, and see what's going on. And when he met with them, he said those families were happy because they felt that the sacrifices they had made 
that their families had made in repeated generations to preserve this knowledge and understanding had been safeguarded enough and enough people were grabbing onto them and running with them in all different directions and they were well pleased because they knew their work was done. Wow. Well, it's it, it does feel as though there is so much more truth out there. It's always been out there, but but it's it's more visible today than ever before and you know the internet, we owe a lot to the internet. Of course, there's a lot of of garbage out there too, but but sifting through it and finding things that resonate with you because I do believe that, that we we have within us the knowledge of archetypes and the knowledge of ancient wisdom and it's a matter of uh, I, I do believe that our DNA is in many ways um, the hall of records that we've been searching for. It's been carried within us since the beginning of time and, and it's a matter of being able to unlock those doors and and in my opinion it is a spiritual journey that unlocks those doors that that's brings us into contact and awareness of the ancient wisdoms that have been out there and the teachers that have been out there and shared knowledge and wisdom with us and certainly um, Mary Magdalene is one of those well, I totally agree with that, and I, I think that biologically and biochemically, we are really, um, we are, the, like you said, we are the Akashic Record of the Hall of Records. We are it. Uh, God eternal within my body, Greg Braden, Greg Braden says. As a matter of fact, the new book I'm working on is all about the, the, this biology and where it really takes us. So if you look at, if you look at America in our modern day world and you look at, well, let's just take a slice of Hollywood because there's a slice of Hollywood that's very dark. But if you, if you take all the superheroes and all the magic, um, what is that reflecting to us? Even on television, there's a fair amount of, of that going on. And, you know, we don't necessarily have to get into artificial intelligence, but I think in, in the stuff that I'm working on now, taking this even further, is, our, you know, I mean, Dr. Bruce Lipton talks about this a lot, of Greg Braden, a lot of people do, but it's one thing to talk about it, and it's another thing to do it. And I think that's where the intuitive arts really come in when you take the time to properly uh, train, initiate, and acclimate yourself to to those levels of understanding. And I think this is where we're going. And I think the Jesus story, if, if we go back, we jump back 2,000 years, if it's true that Jesus said, you know, you will do all the, the things that I do and you will do far greater is that I believe he was signaling that there would be a time where we would begin to understand the biology of transformation, the ascension, the initiatory pathway, properly preparing ourselves for this, you know, biochemically as well as mentally, spiritually. However, all those different component pieces, and I think we're poised to make a huge leap forward. Oh, I, I would agree with you. I'm working with kids who have, I, I'm working with a few kids who have parents who are totally into this 
stuff. They're not in resistance. They're not freaked out by it. They understand that we have a right brain and, and an intuitive skill set that goes with that. And we've been working with a few of them, and it's extraordinary where these kids are at already intuitively. And I think that's where we're going. And I think the Jesus story, in truth, was about Jesus becoming a fully actualized person, a person of full remembrance, who could read the Akashic Record, who could do all these things and more. And I think the powers that be just saw the level of power that he had. And I think that's why they went after him. Oh, absolutely. Well, look at he he studied in Egypt. He studied in, in Tibet. He studied in, in all of the major areas of, of, of spiritual um, initiation. Yeah, and 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 it, it's just it, it it boggles my mind that people don't understand that that he was fully actualized. I mean, he he was just like you and me to start out with, and and you know had these these experiences just just like in um, in Reiki, where at the end of of each level you get an attunement. I, I right. do feel that, 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 that he experienced far greater and far more of those kinds of attunement to higher levels of frequency to be able to understand and communicate and connect to greater insight and wisdom that was carried within him. Um, and, I and, agree with that. And, and, and if he came through the Essene community, which I believe that he did, he was already born into a conscious community who knew who he was. So there were so many influences that or who he could become. And there were just so many nurturing ways in which his journey was accelerated from the get-go. Yeah, and this is, I think, important when you come into today's society, children, and, and especially in this country. Kids today are, are programmed rather than help to think so that so that they aren't they aren't brought up in uh, uh, in, in, in a way that enables them to, to truly think for themselves and it isn't until you know most of us got to a point in our 20s 30s 40s 50s where we suddenly started doing this seeking I mean if you if you start this with kids who are young they haven't been so programmed that they're they're you know that in an early age at an early age they have the flexibility to be able to embrace anything and the older they get the the less and less flexible they become and until some never do and and others break that mold and and begin to to flow with a, a spiritual energetic that is really profound that doesn't mean that that those who have broken that mold and are flowing with a spiritual energetic are wearing white robes and going to the mountaintop and waiting for the mothership it means that they are incorporating uh, incorporating a greater understanding of the spiritual impact within our lives and and how to enhance it and and bring greater richness to ourselves and the planet as well i you know i think i know i i it's an interesting time to see 
you know, the technology revolution and the plus and the minuses of that and, um, you know, sustainability in the environment and, and, you know, the younger people seem to be much more aware of that. I mean, it's, it's the planet and we all have to live on it, but there, there's so many pieces working themselves out right now. The social aspect, the political aspect, it just keeps bubbling up. And when we were talking the other day, I had mentioned the date of 2020 and I just found a second source from it coming from a whole different perspective, um, by some global grid keepers. I'll just name them that for now. And I've got a drill down on why they've picked 2020 as this L40 shift uh, themselves and see because it because I was talking about how um, this astrologer Leo Tallarico who I knew know in South Portland Maine who has he believes that it's highly possible this Aquarian age is coming in on the winter solstice on 2020 so I mean we're in 2016 it's really close and if that's our leap time if that's when we really take this huge leap forward it's it's really interesting and provocative and challenging to watch the chaos and the breakdown out there right now and how and what's trying to birth through that chaos, what's trying to, you know, be the phoenix rising from the ashes. And I don't think we're there yet, but I do think that it's um there's a lot of catalysts out there right now, especially in the American political system, that are really shaking things up. And on some level, we must need that. Well, L40 shift, do you want to explain that for those who don't well, understand it? I don't even understand it yet, and that's why I have to I have to get in touch with some people that – I was following certain uh, material for years and then went off in some other directions. But I noticed um, in some material that I just got from them that 2020, we're looking at this moment of major shift in which it's referred to as an LP40 and that there are geological shifts that need to happen with the planet itself. Um, and I don't have anything further on that. I just happened to notice it just before I was looking over this just before we started the show. So I don't know, but we had talked about that 2020 date. So the reason why I bring it up is because is it's so close at hand and so much is trying to express itself now. And some of it looks crazy and insane. And then other parts of it are just amazing. Well, we are going through it. That's 2020. What what month 2020? Uh, well, this material doesn't give a month that I'm aware of, but my, my buddy, the uh, professional astrologer, he specifically says winter solstice 2020, which would be December 21st, 22nd. Yeah. Um, well, it, there is there is a lot of geophysical stuff going on. Um, as we speak, we, we're finding that, that the planet as a whole is, I mean, the ring of fire is waking up like crazy. It and, is. And, um, you know, that, that is altering a tremendous amount. We have earthquakes in this country in places where they haven't been before. And certainly, you know, I, I watch earthquakes carefully because I, I just have this feeling that the, the new Madrid line is going to erupt one of these days real soon. 
and and I I don't know what it's going to do, but I do know that even the government is is watching it carefully and is is preparing for that kind of a an event, and it it just feels as though the planet is is there is a shifting in the planet. They 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 you know talk about polar shifts and things like that, and and I can see that 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 is something that is happening now. Whether a polar shift shift happens you know um, immediately or if it's something that just happens over a period of time, that I don't know. But I do know that that there is so much activity going on as far as earthquakes and volcanoes <clears throat> that that i think the the earth is is changing there is a shifting going on and i think it's a natural shifting i think it's happened before it'll happen again but but you know it's sort of like you know in in many cases we're able to to follow occurrences because we have a frame of reference and i think what we're going through now is a shift that has happened but it's over tens of thousands of years and, and so well, probably hundreds of thousands easily easily yeah so, so yeah, because when the cycles you know inter all the different interlocking cycles lined up on December 21st, 2012. It was the Mayan, you know, the Bakhtun, the 5,125-year. It was the 26,000-year procession of the equinoxes. Um, there's another much grander cycle. I think it's tied to the indigenous stories, um, 104,000-year cycle. So they all aligned. They all aligned, and we're moving deeper into this photon belt, the, the, the center of the Milky Way. We're aligning more fully, um, and, and I think as we do so, the Earth changes, all sentient beings change. Here we are. Here we go, and, and we are feeling it. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And, and with this kind of physical shakeup, there's an emotional slash spiritual shakeup as well. Yeah, it's in, in the whole shadow thing in, in the, um, in the, uh, astrological chart of the United States. You know, there's a shakeup going on in our country. And right now that energy is more focused on our political process in America. And it hasn't been the best of the best. That's for sure. But it's still shaking things up. And it's interesting to see the way different groups of people are viewing and responding to what's being put out on the airwaves. And, you know, I don't know where it's all leading right now. I know individually where I'm at. I, I know what I took the time to, to learn and experience and travel and walk these places, change, grow my light body, become more intuitive, staying grounded, trying to, you know, stay away from toxins and GMOs and toxic food and all of that. And it's been, it's been a full-time job for sure, but I know where I know where I am, and I know the consciousness that I'm radiating, and in my belief, and I feel like I know my my ancient roots now, and I think that's the importance of understanding this information. And then here we find ourselves poised to open the door to Aquarius, a whole different, you know, the Piscean age is ending, yeah. and we have so many choices on how we move through this period in time. But we're moving regardless. Oh, yeah. And there's, 
there's a whole new generation of kids, the indigo, well, they call them indigo kids. Um, you know, they come into this lifetime with, with a, a greater understanding of spirituality than, than any of us did. Well, I think we helped clean it up for them. You know, I think in terms of when I was a, when I was a young kid and the biases and the prejudice and the, and the thought forms and the thinking and so forth that was predominating my world and where I'm at today is a universe away from where I started out. So I think we have helped open up the pathway for them to be freer if they so choose. Like for me, I was raised um, fairly strict Roman Catholic and everybody in my family, and it wasn't until I was a teenager I even had a choice to stop going to church, and that was only because my father stepped in and said, enough of this religion. When it came time to raise my son, um, I gave him the choice for no religion, and I worried about that. I didn't know if it was the right choice, but it did end up being the right choice for him because he has none of that programming. Mm-hmm. And he's a smart kid, and he he gets he he's understanding the synchronicities and the deeper magic in his way and in his time. But he has no filter with religion to even have to go through or figure out because it's just not part of his reality. And it's pretty cool because it isn't, and it and he's a much freer individual. Oh yeah, and and you know a lot of us had to go through a, a deprogramming. To a certain extent. Exactly. That's a much better word. I mean, we, we were the, we were the ones who went through the, the deprogramming, whether it was social, religious, political, all of it, you know, and, and we helped to pave that rainbow bridge so these younger kids coming in now have, um, some really, they can really be free in certain ways, but they're not all choosing that. So it's, it's interesting how it's playing out. Oh, definitely. Um, we are we are coming up close here. I you have. I wanted to bring up. You, you do a number of tours, and you have three of them that are scheduled for um, this this year. Do you want to talk about them a little bit because they look fascinating? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. the The first one is in. Uh, they're all in September this year, and they're all in France. Next year, I think we'll be doing Malta. And I'm not sure about Ireland, but certainly Malta, adding that to the mix with the goddess energies in those temples. But the first one is is the Divine Feminine Journey into the Heart of the Goddess. These are on my website, um, and this is September 2nd to the 10th. The thing about this one, now, I've never done this. This is a new tour that I've created. I've been to most of these locations but it's really starting in Paris and doing a whole full circle throughout France and 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 stopping at world-class goddess sites uh, uh, dedicated to Mary Magdalene, Mother Mary, and then we throw in Joan of Arc and Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, a, a very important bloodline queen who had, you know, did some pretty interesting things in her life. And so we just keep moving along to these locations. They are spectacularly beautiful. They are powerful. We were talking about powerful nodal points in the earth. You know, the Templars placed their black Madonnas on some very interesting earth energies. So the connection 
making, you know, making that with the divine feminine is also connecting it to the power of the earth, to Isis, to the Black Madonna, to the to the very rich lands in France. So that's the first one. And it's it's a nine day journey and I'm looking forward to it because I've never done them back to back. There's something about doing a journey on in PowerPoints back to back like that that yields breakthroughs in consciousness when people come on them. Mm-hmm. And then the other two are in the Renlin Chateau area and they're initiation tours. So for for the listeners, they've heard me talking a lot about doing proper initiation and allowing yourself to to move, you know, physically and emotionally and intellectually into the greater mysteries. There are two. There's initiation one and two. And in the first one, we start really close to, like, Renly Chateau is our ground zero and and Renly Ben. And we fan out a little bit because it's so rich in terms of, the hidden stories of Jesus and Mary Magdalene and the Templars and the Saunier story. And then in Initiation 2, it goes, it fans out even further to the Cathar castles and other interesting goddess sites that are very powerful in terms of the earth. We also go deeper into the whole idea of inner earth in initiation too because we spend time at Bugarash and the legends Jules Verne is all about the inner earth there. Wow, they sound fascinating. And these it's, are- taking, it's taking years to put these pieces together, but they really are, and I always look forward to doing them because it, there's always something new unveiling itself in terms of this mystery. Well, and, and these are on your website, and that's www. Gloria-Amendola.com. Um, they sound fascinating. And thank you. You know, it's been a lot of a lot of experience and a lot of years on the ground. You know, just following the Grail and and the Magdalene. And I never thought I would understand what I understand today. People come on these tours and really have very transpersonal experiences and they're 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 very supported on my tours because um as much as it's beautiful and we can eat great food and you know there's really some wonderful people it's really about that initiation and in, in transpersonal experience which opens our eyes and our hearts and then when we come back to our lives we often make changes because we just see a bigger picture and um I, I look forward to facilitating that with people. Is there a limit to the number of people you can take on these tours? or um... I keep mine smaller. I usually don't do more than 14. Mm-hmm. I find just... that that's a nice number. Because of the intuitive work I do on tours, I mean, I don't think I could do it with 60 people. It's not, you know, other people can, I can't. It's not my style. I work very interpersonally. I do a lot of groups and circles, so for for me, 14 is a nice number. It is a good number. Oh, oh. gosh, we're, we're done. I'm so sorry. This is, I, we could have gone on and on and on, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I so greatly appreciate your taking the time to share your information with us. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.